Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slate Money is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. And by Texture the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines, anytime, using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash slate money. And by Harry's the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. Hello, and welcome to the Screwed Pooch edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and slightly bruised blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, everyone. Kathy's going to be mildly subdued Concussed. this week. <laughs> but you were wearing a helmet when, I was. You, when you fell off your bike. So Good for me. With any luck, the legendary MathBabe brain <laughs> is not too badly I'm fine. affected. Um, we also have the 
one and only Jordan Weissman, millennial extraordinaire and Moneybox columnist at Slate. Yeah, we're sort of like the NFL today. Like, we're just having you play on her. Like, <laughs> it's her, true. Her eyes are a little cloudy. She's not really following my finger too well right now, but I think she's good enough to take she's the good. She's good. Yeah. She's good. Like, you know, it'll we'll, we'll probably get sued by, by <laughs> some health and safety thing at some point. Um, we are going to talk this week about Valiant. We haven't talked about Valiant on this show yet, or at least not at any length. Um, but it is one of the most astonishing stories in the stock market. So we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about Bridgewater, which is the biggest hedge fund in the world and is just the locus of crazy. Um, I can't wait for that. It's going to be it's going to be fun. So Kathy great. knows from crazy hedge funds. And, yes, I do. And this place makes DE sure look downright normal. It does. Um, but first, Jordan, what has, what has been going on in Bangladesh? Okay. So Bangladesh, um, well, I, I, they got robbed. (laughs) That's really the only way to put it. Um, some people managed to steal $81 million from Bangladesh's account at the New York Federal Reserve. So just to put this in perspective, Every single current country in the world, except for the U.S., has these amazing things called foreign currency reserves. And economists love to pay close attention to foreign currency reserves. And Bangladesh, even though it's quite a small and quite a poor country, has like $29 billion of foreign currency reserves. When you have foreign currency reserves, these are overwhelmingly in dollars. All foreign currency reserves of any country anywhere in the world are stored in a special bank account at the New York Fed. And of course, the whole point of foreign currency reserves is you can take them out when you need them through the standard SWIFT system of transferring money. So wait, back up just a second. I've always wondered this. We don't have any foreign currency reserves in the U.S.? No, the U.S. does not. Because because like yeah. if... We the, are the world's the US reserve can't, currency. The U.S. Basically. can't store dollars. Right, it, it makes sense. It can print dollars. Okay. I mean, yeah. like, we, we could have foreign currency. Yeah. We could have euros or yen. Or Canadian or dollars. Canadian dollars, exactly. <laughs> but we don't. Well, yeah, you would also, I mean, countries kind of have to consciously accumulate foreign currency reserves. It's basically a part of trade policy. And right. it's also, it's used in, for currency management. If you want to keep your currency at a certain level, it's helpful to have reserves that you can then buy and sell to kind of push around the markets. Um, China, for instance, is famous for doing yes, this. Yes, I know about China. Uh, Everyone knows about China. So, okay, but, let's, so, but let's go back to yeah, Swift. So the second thing is Swift. I'm, I, this like, is, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I go give a talk and I pay for my airplane ticket in advance and then I get paid back, I have to give them all these numbers to get my wire transfer back. And it's the Swift. It's a Swift system. So the international, this is this only when you give talks internationally. Yes, yes. So basically there are lots of ways of transferring money domestically, and that changes from country to country. There is one way of transferring money internationally, and that is SWIFT. So it makes me actually happy that the Fed actually has to use the same system that I do. So this is interesting to me, though, because I was reading about how this all went down. So what happened first? Let's have some background here. So it is a long and complex story that all ends at a casino somehow in order to launder all of this money. But what basically happened was that Bangladesh's account at the New York Fed got hacked. Um, and the way it got hacked was somebody in the Philippines set up a bank account and had the numbers, kind of the, the password for just to simplify that you needed to go and the protocol that you needed to go and send messages to the New York Fed and say, hey, can we withdraw $20 million at a time from this account holding your foreign currency reserves? 
Apparently, so they were pretending to be Bangladesh. They were pretending they're, to be Bangladesh, and in fact, they put in orders for over a billion dollars of transfers out of this account. And thankfully, I guess they managed to catch it before any more than eighty million was. Well, that's, wait, so, but that's, so wait, but that's what, actually even the, the amazing thing is apparently Bangladesh's like system, like the, the system that they were to be was they used to be alerted was like a manual printer. Like literally, pieces of paper were supposed to come out and tell them, oh, there was an order sent, and that malfunctioned, so they just didn't know it was going on. I mean, this is like a bizarrely low tech system for running international. It malfunctioned, finance. as I understand it, because they ran out of paper. Well, no, they yeah. malfunctioned. I mean, it was pretty obviously an inside job right. in. With somewhere in Bangladesh, and someone made sure to turn off the printer and to make sure that the notifications wouldn't go through so no one would realize that the bank account was being drained of a billion dollars. This was the plan. It got foiled because they misspelled the name of a foundation. No. They spelled a foundation, I think, like with an A instead of an O. Like, <laughs> and, so someone was... said, and so someone said, is this real? Because this looks like it's misspelled. And that's when they realized what was going Are, on. Is this a Nigerian spammer? Wait, is it, <laughs> this is when the Fed realized that something was going on? This was when the SWIFT slash Fed money transfer system. Oh, and plus the other thing was the Bangladeshi started freaking out and calling the Fed. And the Fed was like, it's a Saturday. We're totally not answering the phone. <laughs> anyway, so, so the thing about this is eventually the money went through this, this bank account. It was wired out. It went through a couple more steps. And it ended at this casino in the Philippines where it got turned into cash. And the reason that... Got, got turned into casino chips. Casino chips, exactly. And then, and then Anyway, eventually cash. But what... This is causing its own controversy in the Philippines because apparently these casinos have been exempted from money laundering laws. And that's making the and, and so a lot of people there are freaking out saying literally we are becoming a center for international money laundering because we so poorly police these people. Oh, and, and another thing is that you we have no reason to believe that the hackers are Filipino. Right. Like because. Right. Yeah. Correct. They, it's just they chose the most obvious place to move this money, essentially. And, and if you're going to be laundering money, casino chips are a really good way to launder money because they're completely Untraceable oh and anonymized. This is, this, this is also how money gets moved out of Macau in China frequently, as they send it over to, I mean, kind of gets spirited out to the casinos there. It gets turned into chips and you can literally carry it out or whatnot. So that's, this is, this is almost a, a, a basic pro move if you're a money launderer somewhere. But it, what's but even thing, more pro is that it's their high, the bank heist is on the Fed. It's amazing. But, and, and, but the amazing, the other amazing thing is that this is a failure of the SWIFT security system, which almost never happens. This is literally the only time I can remember ever hearing about SWIFT being hacked. It transfers $14 trillion a day or something completely insane like that at incredibly low um, risk with incredibly high security. And it's like transactions are mostly reversible if you catch them soon enough. And it's this sort of parallel internet um, which covers the world and is highly secure and works astonishingly well. And the amazing thing, really, is not that someone managed... Um, the thing which surprises me is not so much that it's a hack, but, but rather that it has taken so long and that you know, only some crazy sort of what seems like completely insane Bangladeshi central bank is the is the pretty much the only place that you could hack into it from. I mean, if you see the photographs of the central um, the Bangladeshi central bank governor who resigned, sort of sitting cross-legged in front of the 
central bank building because apparently they can't afford chairs or something. I mean, it's it's a pretty kind of ramshackle place. Well, right, I mean, I but, love your culturally sensitive <laughs> comments on this. But um, I just want to say that you know we've talked a lot about money and how it's transferred. But isn't the SWIFT one of those systems whereby you have to wait twenty four hours before it's officially transferred? No, you do not. SWIFT is. Very, very fast. Oh, okay. So, question, would we all be better off if instead of, like, Swift, you just had a giant blockchain where everything was tracked and so you'd know exactly where it went to and... Well, no, I mean, like Swift, Swift is you know exactly where it went to. There's no secret about where the money went. Okay. You have just as much traceability with Swift as you do with a blockchain. Okay, but then once it eventually gets to the, the casino somewhere, that's Yeah, the, where, yeah. yeah I mean, that's, once, yeah. It's, once you turn it from, block, you know, Bitcoin into casino chips, it's the same casino <laughs> chips. That, like, going... Swift, Switching to a blockchain doesn't help you there. A blockchain is a kind of database. The Swift database yeah. is absolutely robust, and they know exactly what happened and when it happened and how it happened. But once it gets to the ta- the craps tables, that's when everything kind of falls apart. I mean, just it just goes oh. to show you that like the secu- people who know about security always say that this the weakest p- spot of any security system is the person at the end of at the end, right? Right. So and in this if, case... If a team of people in Bangladesh who have the codes want to use those codes for nefarious purposes, it's, in a way, it's not the SWIFT system's fault that they right. were able to do that. Yeah, they just need less spelling skills as well. That's the key. So thing. how much money was actually taken in, in, in chips? It, I think uh, $81 million is the total that yeah. ended up... It, wow. it all It all went. So, um, I mean, it worked. Who gets reimbursed? You know, I mean... I don't know. How does that? I haven't looked if like Bangladesh's foreign currency reserves are down eighty-one million now. I, I believe they are. Up. Yeah. I mean, no, no, I mean, the New York Fed isn't going to reimburse them. Yeah. I wonder. I kind of wonder what that did to Bangladesh's current. I haven't looked at what if it's done anything to its currency moves. Like that'd be really sad if like Bangladesh's currency just kind of nudged a little because of that. Um, but anyway. So. Um, Next, we are going to talk about Valiant, but first I need to talk about ZipRecruiter, which is the way that if you want to hire someone to look after your currency who is trustworthy and who is not going to try and put in a billion dollars of transferring it to the Philippines, what you want is to find the most qualified people anywhere in the world. And the way you do that is you put an ad up using ZipRecruiter because it posts to 100 plus different job sites with a single click, basically. It's very painless and it's very easy. And there are 4 million resumes on this site. So you can be pretty sure you'll find someone great. Over 400,000 businesses have used it. And your business should probably use it too. Especially seeing as how you can try ZipRecruiter for free if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash money. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash money. And get instantly matched to candidates from over 4 million resumes for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. Now, my favorite, everyone's favorite hedge fund manager is a chap called Bill Ackman. We've talked about Bill before on this show. In Herbalife, we've discussed Bill. Uh, we've We've definitely talked about Bill Ackman before. But why is Bill Ackman in the news, Kathy? Well, he's <clears throat> he's famous this week for defending the company called Valiant, for the, defending its value um, with a name like Valiant. Um, but in spite of all of his confidence, Valiant has been going down. A it, lot. A lot. Bill lost a billion dollars in a day this week. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we we talked a lot in this um, in, in Sight Money about um, Martin Shkreli. Yeah. But um, Martin Shkreli was actually not the first douchebag in pharmaceuticals. It needs to be said. The, so Martin Shkreli's model of buy up old drugs and then hike the price enormously 
was actually not Martin Shkreli's model so much as it was Valiant's model, and he thought he thought that's a good idea. I'll get in on that. Yeah, Valiant taught him everything he knows, but he, I don't know if they taught him everything they knew. <laughs> the James Brown, right? Line. No, they were doing a better job of it in the sense they were they were like much less obvious about it. But let me, I'm going to give you guys uh, two statistics. Um, Valiant bought. Uh, com- this is the mo of Valiant. They would buy up a company. They uh, to to some extent they would use the t- their their Canadian address to to be able to pay more because they have a tax advantage. They would plunder the employees of that company that they bought up. Uh, especially they would decimate R and D. Any kind of research and development would be gone. They would raise the price of the drugs that that company had sold. And then they would just keep on, then they would repeat. They would do that to many, many companies. And and more to the point, in order to buy these companies in the first place, they would pay top dollar and they would get this top dollar by borrowing money. That's a really important point. And so they levered up enormously to grow and grow and grow. What's interesting about Valiant is, you know, they pioneered this model of you, you know, kind of buy up old drugs, essentially, off patent drugs, and then jack up the price. And we'll get into how they did that, because that's actually a source of a lot of their problems now. There were some sketchy things going on. But, um, you know, Valiant is what happens when uh, is what happened when you gave a McKinsey consultant control of a pharmaceutical company. I mean, J. Michael Pearson was a McKinsey consultant who had this idea that pharmaceutical companies should do less pharmaceutical research and just fire scientists and increase drug prices and milk whatever profits they and, can. And it became known as what's known as a hedge fund hotel. It was one of those stocks which is overwhelmingly owned by hedge funds because the hedge funds really love this kind of financial engineering. He stopped being a drug company and start becoming a financial engineering company because you mess around with things like leverage and prices and that kind of stuff. And and where they ran into problems was was in distributing these drugs. And this, this is a controversy involving a company called Philidor. Essentially... They needed to be able to sell these generic drugs for incredible markups. And how do you do that? I mean, nobody at a Walgreens or a CVS, no pharmacist is going to be say to their customer, oh, yeah, you should pay $800 for this toenail fungus or skin cream or whatever when you can get a $10 version here. So what they did is they crafted this financial relationship that I can barely really explain with a, a company called Philidor. It was especially pharmacy. And what Philidor did was it was essentially a mail order operation. Doctors would write a prescription, okay, and the prescription would that would be filled through Philidor, and Philidor would offer a refund on their copay, essentially, so that they wouldn't have to get hit with the the giant price of this drug themselves, but the insurance companies would have to pay for it. Um, the problem was that Philidor needed a pharmacy license to do this, so they bought another smaller pharmacy and started using its owner's credentials to do it. When he caught on, this created this massive fight within the company where he started literally withholding money from like the checks he was supposed to be sending back to corporate. It became this blow up. Eventually, all, this whole system got exposed. The We know the feds started catching on. The New York Times started catching on. There are now investigations into the system they created. And what the lesson is, I think, partly here is that if your model is to jack up generic drug prices, you're probably going to piss off someone in the process and there's a lot of political risk involved. And that's a lot of what Valiant eventually had to eliminate this relationship it had with Philidor. So its distribution you know, channel died. And they couldn't keep jacking up prices on drugs. I mean, it, the Valiant story is much, much bigger than just Philidor. You, it, it was symptomatic of much, much bigger problems than, than just Philidor. But you're absolutely right. Valiant turned out to be based on a bunch of unsustainable business practices 
And then all of its accounting went skew if, and then the CEO went AWOL for a while, and then they had to restate a bunch of accounts, and then they had a completely disastrous earnings call, complete with 600 million typos, and various, like basically everything which could go wrong did go wrong. And eventually, all of the shareholders who were bought into it just said, We don't have a clue what you're doing anymore. We don't trust you at all, and we're just going to sell this stuff. But just, I, to, just to be, uh, just to give an example, to yeah. a really concrete example, um, they bought um, a company that made this something called is- Isuprel, which is uh, used in emergency situations to prevent fatally slow heart attacks. They they took it for, on. It was it was a fifty dollars when they bought it. They raised the price to twenty seven hundred dollars, which is a fifty four hundred percent increase in price. To compare that to Martin Shkreli, uh, he did he did uh, the same kind of thing to an antiparasitic medication called Daraprim, and he moved it from 1350 a dose to seven, 750 a dose, which is 5,500%. So it's almost exactly the same thing. That was the MO. But one of the things that Valiant did, um, to, to, to um, echo what you guys are talking about, um, because the prices got so expensive for this medication, the hospitals simply stopped using it. So he, it didn't really work the way they were expecting it well, to. Well, it did for a while. I mean, they, they were making massive profits until it the wheels started coming off. And again, I think this is why a lot of it is a story about political risk, is that eventually if you're doing something that is going to enrage literally the entire world and everybody in government, um, Republicans have been a little nicer to Valiant. Like I, I actually watched a hearing where they brought Valiant CEO and Martin Shkreli on, and they were a bit kinder to Valiant. Um, but you're you're opening yourself up to to just regulators and prosecutors coming down on you and creating the possibility that everything is going to collapse and it's going to scare off stock. It's going to, you know, you're going to have to give up certain sales practices. Things are going to start. Uh, things are going to start falling apart eventually. And this is exactly what's happened now. Is that. Valiant has $30 billion of debt, which it has issued to fund all of its acquisitions, but has now sort of seen the light and said to everyone, oh, we're not going to do that model anymore. We're not going to do the like jack up prices model. We're going to be a good, honest pharmaceutical company instead. And the stock market is saying, well, okay, that's fine. But you have $30 billion of debt, which was which you borrowed predicated based on the idea that you could jack up all of these prices. And if, you not, if you're not going to jack up all of these prices, how on earth are you going to be able to service the debt? Plus, the debt has various covenants saying that you need to be able to file certain reports in a timely manner. And since you have no idea what's going on in your accounting, you're not going to be able to do that. So there's a good chance that the equity is worthless. And, you know, this is hurting, coming back to Bill Ackman, Bill Ackman invested an absolutely astonishing $4 billion in Valiant stock and options, and all of which is worth just a few hundred million now. He's basically lost $4 billion on this trade, if you don't include the $2 billion he made when he teamed up with Valiant to try and buy Allergen, but that's a whole other story. To, to come back to the, the actual issue of the pharmaceutical industry, right, and, and what this means for it, um, I do wonder if rather than being totally scared away from the model of jacking up drug prices, instead, other companies are just going to learn to do it more quietly. Like, obviously, you can't be Shkreli, like Martin Shkreli. But, no, I mean, but, all and you companies yeah. raise prices yeah. if they think that's going to make them money. And all pharmaceutical companies have always done that forever. But there's there's been this gradual increase in not just 
pharmaceuticals. Uh, it, it, there's been this gradual increase in uh, generic pharmaceutical prices um, over recent years, not just with Valiant and Shkreli, but just across the industry for various reasons that have to do with consolidation, among other things. But I do think that what you're going to get is companies just being less flagrant about the, the size of the increases and being vocal about it as the business model. So to that end, like the yeah. FDA recently changed the rule on, um, you know, getting a review process through. They, they now have something called a priority or fast track review process mm -hmm. for generic drugs that are willing to compete with off patent drugs made by one company. Yeah. And they're expecting at least 125 drugs to be going on fast track. And that's good news. Yeah, this is satisfying. I, I, after the Screlly thing, I wrote a piece basically saying that this is like the one thing the government can do right now to deal with him. Yeah. So it's not very often that you say this is the one thing that you like the government can do. And then someone goes and does it. It just like it, it made my heart a little bit happy to reuse, reuse a phrase. I think I've, I've been, uh, dropping the show a bunch. The, the death <laughs> of Valiant and of Turing pharmaceuticals and the going to jail with Martin Shkreli and everything else is all going to make the world a better place. Thank you, Martin Shkreli. Thank you, Bill Ackman <laughs> for losing the $4 billion. Um, we're going to move on to Bridgewater because if Bill Ackman is losing money, Ray Dalio is losing credibility. There's a wow. segue for you. That's wow. a segue. But first we are going to talk about texture, which is the best way to read magazines because the old-fashioned way of reading magazines is you go along to a newsstand and you buy this one and you buy that one and you buy the other one and they're perfectly good magazines, but it adds up and... Instead of doing that, what you do is you download this amazing app called Texture on your iPad or phone or device, and you read every single magazine in the world, basically, for a subscription which costs less than the price of just buying three magazines at the newsstand. So you can read Esquire, you can read Vogue, you can read GQ, you can read Men's Fitness, you can read The New Yorker, you can read Consumer Reports. You remember how, like... This is the weird thing about Consumer Reports is that you want to be able to read all of the back issues because you don't really care about necessarily what they're writing about this month. You, right. want to, you care about what they have you written about. You care about dishwashers. The... I have an air conditioner to think about. I, exactly. I actually do care about dishwashers right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with this, you get to search all the back issues. You get to read on subjects across different magazines. You get curators helping you out with all of the best articles from the magazines you might not even have ever heard of. It's a fantastic app. It's called Texture. And of course, because we're awesome, we are going to allow you to try it for free. So what you do is you go to texture.com slash slate money and you'll get a free trial. And it's awesome. And by the time it's over, you'll be completely addicted to it. It's a great little app. Texture dot com slash slate money okay so um while bill ackman is i think now more more investors have lost money with bill ackman than have made money with yeah, bill he's ackman not, not doing well he's not doing well thanks to this valiant you know valiant, debacle valiant stand he um <laughs> You know, he, this is not the first time he's he's lost money in a high-profile manner. He also lost money on Herbalife in a very yes. high-profile manner. And he also team. lost money on Target in a very high-profile manner. Yeah, but Herbalife, he at least seemed to be sort of taking a, a stand for human decency. Like yeah, trying to explain. He'd like to think so. Yeah, I mean, compare, but I mean, yeah, the guy's a Human decency is 
absolutely the first thing that springs to mind when you think of Bill Ackman. I'm not saying he's... I didn't say he was decent. I was saying he was taking a stand for human decency. So, he, so Ackman is, is, is an activist investor who loves to talk about... who loves to take large positions in individual stocks. This is the basically the complete opposite of Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, who has a much, much bigger fund. Uh, the Bridgewater, biggest one, right? The biggest hedge fund in the world. It's $156 billion. Guys, huge hands. And <laughs> he is... A genius who's very good at just looking at the planet and seeing as look seeing how money flows around planet Earth in various different ways and being able to position himself to make lots of money and he's made money consistently for many many years and that's why he has 156 billion dollars under management. Um, he also has 1,500 employees and what he is trying to do is become and. A few people have tried this in the past with varying degrees of success, usually near zero, <laughs> is is to try and transition out right. of his own hedge fund. It's going to be hard. He's because... like, Bridgewater is a thing, and I'm going to set up this incredibly complex management style so that it can run without me. And he started this in about, about six years ago in 2010 he's like within 10 years i'm going to be out and you guys are just going to run this on your own and i i'm i'm going to be able to walk away and just see this thing ticking over happily without me it is not going according to plan and more recently didn't he say he's like never leaving not until he's like immobilized until basically he's going to sumner redstone right? he's he's, <laughs> he's that's exactly right he's going to be reduced to steak and sex before he's <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, oh my god! Wait, so this, yeah, it's, it's interesting though. He says he's like never going to leave. He's trying well, to. I mean, still... he's he's re- been reported to have said that. Yeah. It's not like he said that on the record. Okay, all right. But he's he ha- he's got this crazy, 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 crazy management system. Yeah, let's like, talk about that. I don't know how many of you guys have have seen Black Mirror. And uh, I haven't seen Black Mirror. There's this. I've seen the one episode everyone has seen. So the, there's <laughs> this one episode of Black Mirror where basically you get this little implant behind your eyes, Ugh. and everything you see is recorded and can then be played back. And so there's you get a sort of perfect recall of everything that's happened, and it's this dystopian, like dreadful, horrible thing, and. Bridgewater seems a little bit like that. All meetings are recorded. Every single employee needs to spend 15 minutes a day watching videos of meetings and then second-guessing what people did and making sure that everything was transparent enough. They have votes on whether people are being completely transparent. Here, here's what summed it up for me. The Wall Street Journal had an article about this recently, which is why we're discussing it. Yeah, we got to have that stuff. on the... Yeah. This is a little tidbit. So apparently James Comey, now the FBI director, worked at Bridgewater for a while. And when he left, he sent out a letter basically saying the place wasn't joyful enough for him. The guy who was going to eventually run the FBI was like, this place is a little too harsh for me, man. There's too much surveillance. It's not not enough humor. This is a little intense by my standards. I mean, let's face it. It's a cult. It, it, is, a, it is explicitly a cult. A cult. And, and they love to hire people straight out of university because they can sort yeah. of indoctrinate them in the cult. And if you come in mid-career... You often don't last long. And even the people who do come in straight from university, 40% of them leave within yep. the first year. It's a very high attrition rate. Well, so this gets to a question I think Felix wants to discuss, which is like, what the hell is a hedge fund? You know, it's not like an old, there, there are these private investment 
firms. They're not like partnerships. I mean, they are partnerships, but they're not like the old Wall Street partnerships that were designed to kind of sustain beyond their charismatic founders. So what is it? How how do you keep a big 1500-person cult of personality running? Well, that's exactly right. I don't, after the I cult, don't, after the it cult has nothing to leads. do with the hedge fund. It's just a cult of personality. The only reason that the, it's important that it's a hedge fund is because he's very successful at what he does. So there's so much money on the line. But aren't other hedge funds sort of similar in that way and like the cult of personality-ishness or are there, is there a scale, is there a spectrum of it? I mean, there, of course there's a spectrum, but I guess my point is that when has any cult of personality really lived past its first cult leader leaving? So how many, how many Well, hedge- there's, you yeah. know, the Mormons, I guess. Well, I was, I was going to say Cri- Apple. Christianity. I mean, Christianity. Right? Christianity. <laughs> 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 okay, good point. But inter- interesting that you mentioned Apple because what happened is that the guy everyone thought was going to replace Ray Dalio as CEO, this guy Greg Jensen, ended up being kind of shunted sideways into a less oh, can important we talk about that? CIO role. Uh, we can definitely talk about what that. What happened there? But the guy who replaced him, they brought in from outside, and it was John Rubenstein from Apple, the guy who basically invented the Macintosh. Oh. And they were like, we're going to bring in some Apple guy because he understands from cults of personality. Oh, yes. Oh, it, yes. Is that the theory? Because, like, what? Yeah, I was wondering about this. Why are Apple people being brought on to cults, run? man. It's a total cult. It's just because of the cult. They like get that, it. Yeah. They get that. It's like the details are different. Yeah. But. But you're running a different cult. Is that no. you're a freelance cult leader? <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about the uh, the fight between Dalio and Jensen? Sure. So the fight between Dalio and Jensen, yeah, which, it, yeah, so this was reported in great de- detail also by the Wall Street Journal, and I don't think anyone really understands what it was about, <laughs> but maybe you can take a stab at it. No, I mean, all I know about is that they, that, okay, so there's a, there's a culture of like calling people out on their mistakes, and, and people who are like, po- or happy with the culture talk about how great it is because it's kind of flat. Like you're allowed, any person's allowed, technically allowed to call out Ray Dalio himself for being improper and not sticking to the rules. 210 written principles that everyone has to follow at all points. Tell it like it is, is basically the... (laughs) It's not that far from the Ferengi rules of acquisition, if you know anything about what I'm talking about. Um, But in any case, um, Dalio and Jensen, Jensen was the expected uh, next Dalio. Um, They got into some kind of personality problem with each other and they both called each other out at the same time they and then were... they, and then there was this big like company-wide vote where they would everyone would watch the videos and try and work out whether this constituted like talking bad about someone behind their back or whatever because everything is t- videotaped so, oh, it's so bizarre so again, i just want to come back to how much crazier is this an order of magnitude crazier than your typical hedge fund is it like two orders of magnitude or is I mean, it actually I worked at within... shaw so yeah. we had like david shaw but he wasn't even running the hedge fund by the time i got there okay i mean we had like uh twice a year meetings where we would listen to him talk about what he was interested in and he was interested in things like biology and and um he was worried about you know the amount of heat that that he was adding to the planet by using all the computers he was using but then he was like measuring how much value he was giving to the planet over how much heat he was you know so he was weird but we weren't forced to think about his thoughts on a given daily basis like Ray Dalio forces people to think the way he thinks it wasn't explicitly mind control there's something kind of utopian about this it reminds me almost of um like the industrialists of the 19th century who would try to build company towns so that like 
their employees yeah, would live Fordism. to their yeah, Fordism live yes, to their moral yeah. standard and such. Like it is absolutely a moral thing. It, it is this you know. yeah, it's this idea that I am hugely successful and I am successful because I did things in this way and so everyone else should do things in exactly the same way and then they will be successful. This is not by any means universal in hedge funds. So if you go to something like if you look at someone like Stevie Cohen, um he just gives all of his lieutenants enormous amounts of freedom to do anything they want. And then he just pits them against each other and says, whoever gets the highest returns will get the most money. And then if you have low returns, you're you're out. It's amazing that that actually comes off as the more humane way <laughs> to run a hedge fund when you think about it. That's true. Um, I'm sorry. I think I just blew the levels on my laugh there. I apologize to all the listeners at home. But anyway. The, the, by the way, the, uh, one other tidbit we found out. They, they actually, in some ways, they have complete transparency, like with conversations and stuff. But for the actual dealings of the hedge fund, like the actual trade trading uh, strategies and stuff. It's very secretive. There are only 10 people, right? 10 people uh, in the so-called circle of trust. And um, they sign lifetime non-compete agreements, which I've never heard of. Is that even enforceable? It's, I don't know. It's certainly not. You can't enforce it in California. So you could actually, I, I mean. Think it's, it's, but it's, it's almost like Scientology at that point, right? You're signing yourself up for life in that, some kind of like blood pact. Well, that or you, I mean, I think like emotionally it probably feels that way, but I, I assume anybody who signs up for that is right. either A, just getting so much money it, it doesn't matter, right, or right. B, they, they know it's not actually enforceable. And of course, you know, for all that the fights are ostensibly about, you know, whether you violated a principle, in fact, we can surmise that they're about money. And this is something which came out in a journal article is that one of the main reasons why Greg Jensen fell out with Ray Dalio was that Greg Jensen, when markets started weakening, wanted to, wanted to be able to accumulate Bridgewater stock at lower prices than he'd been paying theretofore. And Ray Dalio was like, I'm not reducing the price of that Bridgewater stock. And that was maybe the real reason why mm. there was a fight between them. Um, but I'll yes, make, I, we, make, we can assume that they are all f- doing just fine financially. I'm gonna, yes, those ten. Yes, I mean, also like just to make a prediction that that Bridgewater is not going to outlast Ray Dalio at all. That's just my prediction. I feel like that's uh, how much. Well, well by how, how much how money long? are you wagering I mean, on that if, prediction? If, if Ray Dalio fell under a bus tomorrow, it would last like at least a couple of years before everything was. Yeah, I'm, I'll give it two years. <laughs> two years. Yes. Okay, so as soon as he's gone, we're going to check back on. Yeah. It. We'll set a timer. Okay, so. Numbers round next, but first I need to talk about Harry's razors. You know Harry's razors. They are a great way of shaving, and they're a cheap way of shaving, much cheaper than the crazy prices that you pay at grocery stores or wherever you normally get your razors. They are made in Germany in a factory which Harry's bought, the entire factory. They have five blades. They have been redesigned. They have this really cool new handle now, which doesn't slip. It's some kind of super high-tech plastic. Over a million guys have already switched over to Harry's because it's a better shave at like half the price of the leading brand. So instead of paying $32 for an eight-pack of blades, for $15 you get a razor, the moisturizing shave cream, three razor blades, and actually never mind. Let's make that $10 because you get $5 off your first order with the promo code MONEY. So go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code MONEY at checkout, and you'll get $5 off. Numbers. I got one. What's your number? It's nine. Just 
Nine. Um, that's the number of um, companies that were, <laughs> it's kind of um, complicated, but there's a place called Aryuna Capital. Have you heard of them? They're an activist investor uh, firm. They're the activist investor arm of the investment firm Baldwin Brothers. They recently are uh, filed shareholder proposals at nine technology firms, basically trying to put gender equality pay uh, up t- to a vote for the shareholders. Okay, so, what does that mean? So yeah. it basically, <laughs> it doesn't mean that much because basically, if what, they, what does the what does the motion what like what are they what am I voting so, for if I vote for this? Yeah. Okay, so they oh the, you're voting for the, the fact that this company should care about equal pay for men and women. When you say care and, about, and, 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 wait, like does the com- is the company out there right now saying we don't care about this, and then they're saying don't vote for this because we don't care. It's just about like whether you care or not. Yeah, it's really weird. It, it sounds like <laughs> a totally. Um, you know, vapid concept. And in fact, lots of shareholders probably wouldn't care that much about that vote. They wouldn't, they would Do just they say, care whether their companies care? Yeah, exactly. So this weird thing, but it, it is a way, an indirect way, obviously, for this activist firm to put pressure on the companies to think about it. And a couple so of So like in, in the bathtub or something. They're like, you know, you, you directors, when you're like, you know, showering under your armpits or whatever, could you just think yeah. about gender equality? There, for there's, a like, there's like one HR minion who's like, all right, you, you are you charged. Can be the person with well, you guys might think this. that, but actually two of those nine companies, Intel and Apple, have already said, yeah, we, you know what? We're we're all about that, and they came out with these reports about how they do really well with gender pay, uh, gender equity pay. I'm sure they, I'm sure their report painted them in fabulous. <laughs> and then and then versus Amazon, which first of all said no, we reject this, and they even appealed to the SEC saying, oh, sorry, the proposal that Arunia Capital put forth is quote so inherently vague or indefinite that it would impede. Implementation. We just simply can't do it because it's not it's, precise it's, enough. Like you can't tell me what to think about in the shower, man. Like, yeah, that's, that, that's my personal. Term. Is that not the most Amazon answer ever? That yes. It's like there are not enough logistics here. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> like, this week uh, the SEC came out and said, "Sorry, Amazon. It's not really that unclear what the proposal is." So we'll see. Like, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that vote that the shareholders will care, but it might be on the shareholder uh, vote. Interesting. I can't believe they challenged that. That's Jordan, did you, did you come up with a number? I've got a number. What's your number? My number is... Um... <laughs> Fuck, one sec. <laughs> I had it memorized and then I have to pull open. Ah, uh, gosh darn it. Okay, one second. Pulling up my laptop so I can make sure I get it right. Uh, okay, my number is... Jordan, uh... <laughs> Jordan, 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 Jordan. Um, okay, so my number is about 15%, a little less than 15% which is how much of uh, America's wealth belongs to the top 0.1%, according to a, a recent study by um, a group of economists from the Federal Reserve Board and the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, why am I bringing this up? Well, it's interesting because... Yeah, I mean, Piketty was like two years ago. Do, do try to keep her. Well, exactly. So <laughs> Piketty was two years ago. Uh, some of his colleagues or collaborators, uh, Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez, came up with their own estimates about wealth inequality around the time capital in the 21st century was coming out. In fact, Piketty later said he liked their estimates better than his own data. And they said that essentially the top 0.1% actually had one-fifth, about 22% of the nation's wealth. But right? it's only 15%. And according to this new one, it's only 15%. Now, why you can... I, I've spent a lot of time looking at the differences between how they arrive at these numbers, and you can actually track each individual 
a, a like alteration to the data that gets you from 15% to 22%. The main lesson here is, I think, that these statistics are really, really, really fragile and depend a lot on how the researchers and economists kind of put them together, craft them, a lot of individual decisions they have to make about which data to use, how to treat that data, how to alter that data to make up for its deficiencies. And so when you, you know, talk about inequality and you hear the debate, I, you just have to remember that a lot of the stuff, these striking statistics are, are actually sometimes kind of made of glass. And the other thing to remember is that individual data points are much less valuable than time series. So yeah. you could, you know, I'm sure that the 22% data point and the 15% data point are both at the end of a line which is going up and to the right or down and to the right or whatever it is, but the lines more or less follow each other. Exactly. Like the 15% yeah. number basically shows inequalities gently rising over time, but not going hyperbolic, whereas the 22% looks like a, they're climbing up a mountain. I'm going to take you guys with me next time I teach statistics. That's my... My co-teachers. <laughs> I'll, I'll come in and help teach your statistics class with my, as long as I can bring my backgammon set, because that's <laughs> everything I learned about statistics. I learned playing backgammon. Deal. Uh, my number is forty percent. Um, talk, talking about statistics and the thing, when you're in journalism, you often try and look at what happened today or what happened this week, and you miss the really big stories because they happen too slowly. So this is a really big story about the way that we live in America, which has happened over the course of the past 20 years. So 20 years ago, if you looked at 18 to 29-year-olds in America, 70% of them, you asked them, what's your drink of choice? 70% of them said beer. Yeah, yeah, I love Today, beer. if you asked 18 to 29-year-olds in America, what's your drink of choice? 40% of them say beer. What do the other 60% say? Wine, a lot of wine. We love cocktails, vodka. We, yeah, but we love wine. Basically, huh. we're generational winos. Did not know that. Yeah. That surprises me. We're in a big, long-term, secular downtrend for beer, and I can't say that's a bad thing. No, it's also it's it's troublesome, especially for for the macro brewers, for Anheuser Busch and such, because their market share of that drinking market is 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 falling as well. I don't feel sorry for them. I mean, it's. I, I'm not saying. How it about should. In other just... countries? Like in, I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and it seemed yeah. like everyone drank beer. And and yet, I mean, it's it's happening in most beer drinking countries. Northern Europe has is has historically been beer drinkers, and Southern Europe has historically been wine drinkers. But the amount of wine being driven drunk in Northern Europe in in beer drinking countries like Ireland, Britain, Belgium, Germany has been going steadily up. Hmm. I mean, this is why the future of beer is basically in like China and Africa and emerging markets where they haven't hit peak, you know, suds yet. They haven't gotten, they haven't gotten uh, blackout drunk on, you know, metaphorically speaking, yet they can keep going. I only ever got really, really, really drunk on beer once. And that was in hard. Germany. But it's I not know you, easy. I know you went to college. Yeah. Tequila. But even in college, what, I was drinking you... like things which weren't beer. That's all yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> you you and I had very different teenage years. <laughs> okay. That on on which note we are going we're going to wrap up this episode of Slate Money. Send all like best wishes, please, to Kathy O'Neill. I'm going to go recover in a beer house. So everybody, don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> but the way the way you recover after going over the handlebars is by drinking beer. This yes. has always Wait, worked for me. Can we make Laterhose in the official Slate Money bar? It is already the it, it is I would do it. We should bar. do a Slate Money meetup at Lederhosen. Oh, my God, yes. People would love that, I think. Come join us at Lederhosen one Friday afternoon. 
with Audrey Quinn. I'm, I the, the producer. We will see. We'll see if we can get Steve Lichtai to come along. Yes, the, the mysterious Steve Lichtai. Never who I met don't him. Think anyone has ever met. Um, he's the executive producer. Um, maybe Andy Bowers is the other executive producer who we have met. Um, and anyone else from the Panoply Network, which is all at iTunes.com/slash/Panoply. So keep those letters coming to slate money at slate.com, and we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. 